Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. So, uh, lovely lunch. You can all relax now. Um, as I said to Jackie earlier, um, there's a nice contrast, really, between the three presentations that uh, are here today because they, they're all sort of focusing on something slightly different, but all under this uh, umbrella term of widening participation. So, good afternoon, everyone. My name's uh, Sue Betts, and I'm the uh, director of Linking London. Um, I too am going to have to remove my glasses just to make sure I keep on track, so excuse me. Um, I was delighted actually to be asked by Jackie to contribute to this first um, seminar focusing on London, designed to explore the meaning and complexity of the local in terms of widening participation in practice. Um, local in the London context is of course complex as we've been finding out today. Um, by way of information, I was sent the flyer to advertise this um, seminar series with the details of Dr. David Thompson's morning session entitled Still Searching for Rita, Reflections on Widening Participation Research and Practice Post-Deering, which sort of sparked off quite a few things. And then, funnily enough, as these things happen, in November, um, I found myself listening to Julie Walters, Rita, uh, on the Graham Norton show, describing how if the film rights had gone to Hollywood, the two main protagonists would have been Paul Newman, of whom I was a great fan, and Dolly Pardon. <coughs> I'll say no more. <laughs> but it definitely got me thinking, uh, and over the holiday I enjoyed putting together this reflection as a case study. Um, the key question it got me thinking about in terms of widening participation is, as this is about change, does what I do and what we've been doing at Linking London for the past 10 years make a difference? So a bit about me, who am I? I was asked for a brief biography and I think those are in your pack. Um, I've been in and around education all of my adult career started off in further education, which is where Annette and I met, um, where I worked for 23 years. And we widened participation then without actually defining it. Um, finally, I moved on after being vice-principal in FE with responsibility for curriculum and staff development, so it's quite a broad remit. I worked for BTEC for a while as um, an education advisor and if you can cast your mind back, those of you who can, because some of you are far too young, um, if BTEC didn't have the qualification you needed in those days, you had to write it yourself. So we wrote the BTEC National Diploma in Media, we wrote the BTEC National Diploma in Performing Arts. There also weren't many access to HE courses. In fact, I think one of our ones in the social services and humanities were amongst the first in the country. We also had um, an access to HE media for women only, which back in the day must have been quite seen as quite revolutionary, I think. Um, I then had the privilege of working for two brand new initiatives from scratch, the University for Industry, or Learn Direct, um, and subsequently the ill-fated, but I thought, what a brilliant idea, the University for the NHS, or NHSU. That was the idea that you develop curriculum, and whether you study in Solihull or Southampton, you're qualified and it, and it reads across. So your training is not related specifically to which hospital you were attached to, etc. But anyway, that wasn't to be. And that, funnily enough, I was working as an education consultant when... Um, somebody in my study at home passed the advert for director of Linking London across my desk and the rest is history as they say. That year was 2006. So the Higher Education Funding Council had decided after the inspirational Sir Colin Bell Memorial Lecture given by Sir Howard Newby in 2004 to invest in 30 lifelong learning networks across the country. They were actually choice C in the list of possibilities. Uh, what they wanted, actually their favourite, was the setting up of a range of community colleges, rather like they have in the States. I think a lot of 
principals went over to Wisconsin to see what they were doing in America, what was the community college. Uh, but we couldn't have those. The second idea was that there could be mergers, mergers between FE and HE, and you would have a through curriculum. Uh, but they didn't get that either. Well, there was an abortive attempt, I think, was it Bradford? Um, mm -hmm. One, anyway. And we were the third choice, the lifelong learning networks, and that's what they ended up uh, setting up. So they were set up to be partnerships of FE and HE, and their main function was to bring to the vocational track coherence and a track of progression that they regarded as neglected uh, because, um, as we know, some other tracks are far more familiar. I'd actually been working previously for partnerships for progression. Do you remember those? Yeah. Um, that was in the East region when I was director for UFI there. But they, I don't really know what happened to them. I, it almost made me think... Did they? That's interesting, because I know the one in the East kind of just fizzled out and then something must have been aimed higher. So that's, yes, good. In fact, the seminal text in 2005 by Brenda Little and Helen Connor, for those of you who remember it, Vocational Ladders or Crazy Paving, Making Your Way to Higher Levels, had alerted all to the well-known statistic now, even in those days, that if you had A-levels as your level three qualification, you had an 80% chance of getting to HE. Not surprising, some of you will say, given that A-levels were developed by universities to, set, to aid their selection process. But if your, -level, if your level three qualification was vocational, your chances in some areas could be as low as 40% or even lower. It was John Selby and Kevin Whitston at Hefke who led the setting up of the lifelong learning networks, aided by vast business plans. I remember ours was about 92 pages, over a hundred million pounds. And remember the numbers allowed to enter HE then were not limitless. Uh, there was a cap on student numbers and you were only allowed to deviate above and below by 5%. So they had armed with them a very useful pot of additional student numbers designed to persuade HE to expand the number of vocational learners they recruited without reducing their current intake of students. And that was important. At the same time, the AIM Higher project was running designed to raise aspiration for young people in schools and colleges to enter HE. Of course, EFI, as you all know, is not just young people. There are significant numbers of 16 to 19 year olds, but there are also adults, part-time students, students on recreational courses, and those on work-related courses. And in fact, one of my first encounters with a vice principal in this job in Lewisham was a lesson in what we know about FE. Sue, I've 70 students with HE places for next year. Aspiration's not the problem, money is. These were the ones who weren't going to go to HE. So we had a 3.6 million grant, which today seems kind of crazy, uh, 35 partners, a project plan, Birkbeck as our host, uh, and no, do I just? I yeah. don't know. Yeah, yes. That's okay. I, th I think I'm supposed to be moving it. Um, no desk and how and the question, how do you widen participation for vocational learners? Well, having recruited some staff and getting some desks, which was a start, we started looking at the curriculum and we mapped where the links were that were already made and where they made sense. And if you remember as well, there were five lifelong learning networks in London and we all had a sector which we were supposed to major on. Um, ours was public and community services, including health, which fitted very well with Birkbeck's lifelong learning agenda, but not necessarily with all of our 35 partners we were to discover. However, there were also glaringly disconnected areas where getting a, to a degree pathway and achievement was both time-consuming and disjointed. 
we had, had compared what we were trying to do um, with the standardisation brought about by the Railway Gauge Act of um, 1842, uh, after two tracks run by private operators famously met and people realised they were working with different sized tracks. We also realised that our HE partners were not all, at that time, terribly familiar with qualifications other than A-levels in the vocational pathway, BTEC nationals, access to HE, city and guilds, and of course apprenticeships. If you cast your mind back 10 years, it's interesting to remember. Um, I actually cold called a couple of the universities in our partnership um, to find out what was their attitude to vocational learners. And a university not so very far from here, I got talking to a woman, she had no idea who I was, although I told her who I was. I mean, I could have been from the press, I guess. Um, and she said, oh no, BTEC learners. We had one of those once, never again. So, you know, 10 years, a lot has changed. Um, Andrew Jones, my deputy, who is actually an IAG specialist, joined us in 2007. And his expertise in matters relating to information, advice and guidance were actually critical here. And the team did an awful lot of work trying to demystify uh, vocational qualifications. And uh, um, as I said to Annette, I've got a few uh, props here. We actually produced this um, postcard, um, which ended up being endorsed by, right way up, endorsed by SPA. Um, because people weren't clear, if you started off here at level twos and threes, where was your route through? In fact, it was so popular, we're now on about our fourth edition. Um, we produced posters as well um, to help people understand, and those were put on um, people's notice boards and things. It was quite good to see those. And our most recent one, and this partly illustrates how complicated the changing vocational landscape is, looks like this. So, you know, that's supposed to be progress. Um, this has been endorsed by SPA, and we've just gone to press to order 5,000 of those. So if you want any of those, um, let us know. So it's, with all the changes going on, it's actually um, an, an ongoing issue. Um, and I'll say more about that later. So what else did we do? We started using progression agreements uh, as tools to enhance progression opportunities between further education and our universities. Sometimes we supported those progression agreements with additional student numbers, uh, but not always. And they worked well to illustrate to students where the next step could be. They were often extremely mo motivational especially for older students. Um, they were not to limit choice, uh, but to present some certainty and coherence to the students. And I have to say that the curriculum meetings that I attended between teams of staff from FE and HE, talking about their respective courses, were some of the most fruitful staff encounters I think I've ever witnessed. And the promotional marketing events for the signing of the progression agreements where all the great and the good were gathered were also great opportunities to firm up those collaborations and those workings between our partners. By the end of the Hefke funding period, and it was supposed to last for three years, uh, we had over a hundred progression agreements in place supported by a toolkit and templates for customising. However, nothing remained static and certainly not in the world of WP. The global meltdown in 2008 made the euphoria and the optimism of those earlier labour years look a bit naive. Do you remember the 50% Tony Blair? Uh, when I went to university the figure for young people was 5%. So as we entered the third year of our project we released more of our funding to enable partners to de develop their own projects. And in the end, we used 750,000 of the whole grant um, in this way, resulting in 74 partner-led development projects. At the end of year three, um, we produced progression 
a publication outlining some of our achievements. Uh, 25 new courses developed, 56 progression agreements signed at this point, 109 staff development events, 1,700 staff attending, 400 full-time additional student numbers distributed, which amounted to £1.3 million worth of Hefke funding. In year four, remembering this was supposed to be a, a three-year project, um, Hefke said you can carry on uh, while you use up the remainder of your grant. Remember, we had 3.7 million. We'd been very prudent as well. We hadn't spent money particularly freely. But in 2010, Hefke suggested that if our partners wanted us to continue, um, they should supplement the remaining Hefke grant by contributing to our running costs. So we took that proposition to our partners and they said yes, so they did. So at the end of year five, there is method in my madness, uh, we produced Impressions, a publication uh, containing more evidence of what we had done. We were quite keen to show you know, what we'd achieved with our partners over those five years and uh, to ask them for comments on how we've been doing. Gathering evidence, I guess you'd say. Um, 35 new courses by now, 48 publications written, 210 staff development events, 2,000 staff attending, and this was the critical one for us, 2,200 learners expected to benefit from progression agreements brokered by Linking London and a million hits to our website. Um, I think I'm going to move on my slide. These are our current partners, by the way, if you're wondering who we are. Um, but you don't have to believe what I say, because we then went out for an evaluation, and we went to CFE, who evaluated our work and produced this report in 2011. Uh, it was a very thorough piece of work led by James Kiwin. So, since 2011, we've, na we've become a subscription-based collaborative partnership continuing to be hosted by Birkbeck. You can see up there in the, the middle. To continue the railway theme, and I do like the um, climate change analogy, actually, because I'm going I'm to work on that. Um, to continue the railway theme, we felt during the Hefke funding period we had spent money on the collaborative infrastructure. So we'd oiled the track and now the wheels, but we weren't really sure what freight was being carried. Um, and I don't mean that with any disrespect to the learners, but we weren't sure, you know, we had 2,000 could benefit from progression agreements, but we had no way at this time in following that up. Um, so here's a little bit more information on what we are now. Um, and I don't know how many people in the room know anything about Linking London. Could you put your hands up if you don't know anything? So quite a few of you. So shall I just deviate for a quick few minutes just to tell you a little bit about what we are now and what we do? Because I think a lot of what comes afterwards um, relates to that. So we call ourselves a unique, this is the hard sell, I'm afraid. We call ourselves a unique established partnership of 40 institutions. London universities, London colleges, and we have corporate members who are also very important to us. City and guilds, London councils, you heard <laughs> about them this morning, their education and skills team, OCN London, Pearson, and Union Learn. And the core aims of our partnership is to support recruitment, retention and progression through higher education in all of its variety, including part-time, higher apprenticeships, work-based learning and into employment. The central team, who, as I say, look after the network, are based at Birkbeck, <coughs> the University of London. And through our membership, we work collaboratively and individually to maximise partners' contributions to targeted widening participation, student engagement and achievement, social mobility, 
and in the pursuit of improvements in social justice through education. We provide a forum for information sharing, problem solving, networking and the achievement of collaborative targets. This means that our partners have a distinctive and collective voice across further and higher education, particularly with regard to improving social mobility in the capital. And we work with a range of national and regional partners, uh, people on our partners' behalf. We respond to consultations from government. We've just done a recent one to the Green Paper. I don't know if any of you have been involved in that. That was delightful. Um, and we have increasingly proved to be a powerful advocate for our partners, lobbying on their behalf and on behalf of learners, trying to ensure uh, a seamless progression journey. That's just a, a screen grab of our website. So if you want to know a bit more about us, uh, please go on to the, the website. As I said before, we've got an extensive programme of staff development opportunities. We run 25 events a year, free of charge for our members, and an annual conference. We also have practitioner groups in the important areas of IAG, which is still an ongoing issue. Bye. Um, higher education in further education. I don't know if you know, but about 14% of HE in London is delivered in FE. Um, and we have three main vocational qualification pathway practitioner groups, BTEC, Access to HE, and the new City and Guilds Tech Back. We work with the awarding bodies to ensure that our partners are both up to date with the main developments, but also they can influence changes in those developments by working with the awarding bodies. We publish a range of resources. Um, we have a partners area on the website and we produce three monthly newsletters and a, a new development, a bi-monthly e-zine. Um, we advertise our events, partners work, and we have a database of about 1,500 contacts, which allow us to keep people up to date and informed about developments and opportunities. We advise on the changing educational landscape across all learning, but our particular expertise is in vocational and professional qualifications. And I think the time for partnership and collaborative working continues to be critical. If you address issues from the perspective of a large, diverse partnership on the basis of experience and expertise, whilst being cost-effective, that's particularly appealing to our partners. So we can share, stay up to date with developments, share solutions and our partners can evidence their own contribution to collaborative targets, which, as you know, are in the offer access agreement. So, and we also provide an independent and objective voice for our partners while acting on their collective behalf. So just a little bit about us. I hope that wasn't too bad. Um, I believe we've developed a kind of solid and sustainable base uh, for linking London, both in terms of the growth of the network. In 2015, last year, uh, thir the 32 London boroughs joined us as associate members. Um, and we are financially stable now, which is a good place to be. We also run one of the three um, national networks for collaborative outreach in London. Graham runs another one, and there's another one in South London. Uh, run by Aim Higher South, and that is building and complementing our work as a partnership of FE and HE. Our core business remains the pursuit of improvements in student achievement, social mobility and social justice. Along the way, we found out a great deal about how our partners operated their own widening participation activities. And what I've tried to show here is the sort of journey I think we've been on with most of them. Remember, this is all relative, and each institution has its own unique starting point. In fact, widening participation as a journey uh, is quite an apt metaphor. This is a simplification, but the three main models seem to emerge. I think when we started, 
widening P and the institutions, in some institutions, was quite separate. And the widening P teams were often quite evangelical about what it was they were trying to achieve. Later on, Model 2 started to emerge where the widening P team got much more involved with the institution and vice versa. And there was some overlap being detected between uh, parts of the organisation that looked at recruitment, uh, marketing, external relations, and those groupings at least crossed over. Finally, um, the most successful developed this other model which is supposed to illustrate a whole institutional approach. So there is no connect between the work of the WP team and the academic staff. I mean, we had come across places where I suppose the disconnect meant that the WP team, for example, were doing fantastic, innovative work um, <coughs> using lots of um, new educational technologies, etc., etc., and people were getting very inspired were coming along to the university, joining up, and then finding that the other bit of the university uh, hadn't quite caught up with that much more innovative way of um, teaching and learning. And so there was this disconnect between what the WP team had kind of raised as an expectation and what the academic staff were actually delivering at that time. And so that third model, where there is a connect, it's strategic, it's holy, it's the whole institution. Um, seem to have been the most successful. We also realised that although we'd done much in those five years to help with the understanding of vocational qualifications and had improved some of the collaborative infrastructure, we needed more information and data about the learners. So we commissioned uh, Hugh Jocelyn and Sharon Smith from the University of Greenwich to do two major pieces of research for us initially. And I mentioned earlier today the piece of work on apprentices. One piece looked at the progression of college learners uh, in London to higher education from 2004 to 2010. And the other piece looked specifically at the progression of advanced apprentices into higher level learning. These two pieces of work uh, on London were on the back of a national survey and if you want to explore the national picture um, that's on the BIS website um, and this led to a joint dissemination event at BIS headquarters. This research cost us £48,000 and we managed through the network to raise the money for that research not from our partners I might add but from co-sponsors who were very interested in the findings. And those sponsors included people like EDGE, uh, the London Councils, University of the Arts, Royal Holloway, S uh, South Thames College, so a whole range of other partners in, not partners, a, a whole range of other institutions in London. And I think this was a very important moment in our work, actually, having this data. It told us a great deal about the role of further education in widening participation, and it told us where those students were going to study HE, how they did once they were there, and it told us their ethnic background, their gender, and it also located them in terms of their residency and their polar quintiles, about which we heard much this morning, a proxy for levels of social classification. Several of our partners on the back of this work commissioned their own institutional data reports which drilled down even further into the data. The, those reports, of course, were confidential. It led, importantly, to increased engagement with the Young People's Education and Skills Team at London Councils. And it also led, and I think this was important for the whole of today and the way that the talks actually have complemented each other, it also led to a tacit recognition that no one organisation or institution had the full picture of London progression. London councils, after the work with us, were also working with Continuum at UEL, 
to supplement their knowledge of the 875 schools in the capital, secondary schools, because they wanted information at borough level, some of which Graham talked about, and similarly the work of Ken Spores and Anne Hodgson at UCL Institute of Education also added to the amount that we knew about progression. I presented our findings with Sharon Smith at the IOE and then was asked to sit on UCL's Institute of Education London-wide consultative committee run by Anne Hodgson. Again, context is everything and WP does not, as we all know, operate in a vacuum. In 2012, fees of up to £9,000 were introduced by many HE institutions and additional student numbers of 15,000 for two years were put on the table. We were keen to be able to track some of these changes and what it would mean for WP in terms of FE and progression to HE. As I said, remembering <coughs> about 14% of HE provision in London is delivered by our further education colleges. So we went back to Hugh and Sharon for a second report which would take college learner progression beyond the introduction of the £9,000 fees in 2012 to see if there had been an impact. This time £24,000 was required, so it was a bit cheaper, and that was supplied by three willing Linking London partners, eager to see what was happening in the capital. And I need to mention them because I'm eternally grateful to them for financing this. That was King's, SOAS and the London Council's Young People's Skills and Education team. Remember, by then, much had changed. And I've got an infographic, which I hope is in your pack, um, which will help with the headlines of this second report. And we had new information this time as well. Um, for the first time, we actually had information on GCSE attainment at Key Stage 4 which, as Graham said this morning, is a key indicator uh, for purposes of tracking um, students. I'm definitely not expecting you to read that off, the, off the, um, the slide there, but that's in your packs. A total of 221,000 learners, level three achievers, were tracked. So that's quarter of a million students. Between 2007-8 and the last cohort in 11-12, what happened between those years, there was a growth of 10% in numbers. Access to HE numbers, I'm giving you a few of the headlines now, uh, were up 24%. But BTEC numbers, and this is the really significant one, nearly doubled with a 93% growth in numbers. In the last cohort that Sharon and Hugh looked at, BTEC learners made up a third of the total and there were double the number of BTEC learners than there were A-level students. So that had significantly changed. This infographic, as I said, pulls together the main findings what became totally clear, however, was the way in which the FE cohort had changed and how what was on offer in FE had also changed. And with the information on Key Stage 4 attainment, how critical those five GCSEs at Grade C and above, soon, as you know, to be Grade 4, when we get the numerics, was not was not only to FE but also as they were tracked to HE attainment and the standout paragraph in the report for me was as follows and I'm going to quote FE and sixth form colleges in London are seen to cater for an increasingly deprived cohort the findings show that of the cohorts of London College students 77% came from deprived neighbourhoods, and 61 came from BME groups. 
coupled with the fact that the London colleges provide level three opportunities for students who are low key stage four achievers at school, many of whom go on to progress to HE, this report reveals the significant role the sector has in the capital as a mechanism for social mobility. Or you could say FE was doing some of the heavy lifting for the lack of achievement in the schools. Rates of regression are also higher for London than the rest of the country. For the first cohort, the rate was 55% compared to an all-England college rate of 48% when tracked longitudinally. While young London college students were progressing in the year following gaining their qualification of rates between 57 to 62% until 12-13 when it dropped to 45% compared to an all England rate of 37%. There was a massive increase as I said 93% in the cohort size of the level 3 BTEC students in London colleges and this was in accompanied perhaps inevitably by a decrease in the progression rate from 58% in 09-089 to 37% in 12-13. Again, context is all, and we need to look at what was going on in the economy and the labour market. 2008, if you remember, was not a good year to be looking for work as an alternative to going to university. 56% of BTEC college students in London who progressed achieved a first degree, and 14% achieved a lower HE award while 36% of London BTEC students achieved a first or an upper second class honours degree compared to 50% of all England college students. Given the fact that the BTEC cohort is now much larger and that there have been by and large been low key stage four achievers in school, it is clear that both colleges and universities have a role to play here in improving the success rate of the vocational students who progress. So what work is going to address some of what we now know about the students who are progressing from FE to HE? Well, the universities we spoke to said that the students require study skills. So there's work going on to maximise the potential benefits of the one piece of the diploma reforms still remaining, the extended project. Michael Gove, as you know, had introduced reforms that saw success at the missed baseline qualifications at school as now being fundable at college. And the awarding bodies, so there's lots of retakes going on. And one college told me a few weeks ago in the summer they're going to have to find space for 1,600 maths retakes. I think they're probably going to have to go to Ali Pali or somewhere to, to do that. Um, and awarding bodies are introducing reforms that attempt to make the awarding of a qualification more consistent across the country. And with an element, this was another thing the university said, external assessment, including exams being part of the award. There have also been changes to the number of resits that can take place. Um, we run an annual event entitled The Changing Landscape of Vocational Qualifications and never has the landscape felt more in flux than it does this year. There's also been a worrying decline in the number of adults in the system, which we now know has been replicated in HE with disastrous consequences. The numbers declined by 42% prior to the fee increase and the, no the £9,000 fee has done nothing to halt this decline. I'm sure you're all familiar with the work of Claire Callender at Birkbeck on the decline of adults in HE. When I took up this post in 2006, one third of Bir Birkbeck students were accepted with no matriculation at level three. And the ending of the equivalent qualification level payment actually made quite a difference to parts of the adult market. And elsewhere, 
the higher pro rata fee for part-time did not encourage students to progress. As you know, the main route from FE to HE for adults is through the Access to Higher Education Diploma, and we work very closely with OCN London, the awarding body, to ensure that our partners are up to date with those changes. There are about 5,000 OCN um, Access to HE students in London in any one year. Over the last two years, there have been many uh, changes designed to make the qualification more consistent across the country and to provide rigour, and to ensure that it remains a challenging but appropriate grounding for progression to higher level study. Certainly UCAS are looking at making changes that will help with that award. Um, in 2017, it's going to be included in the new UCAS tariff, which will certainly help. Um, the waiving of the Level 3 loan as well on successful completion of a higher level course is also a great incentive. One of our universities, LSBU, is already engaged in collaborative work with OCN London to enhance the progression routes of those access to HE learners through extended project work, which they're using as a transitional activity between FE and HE. And it, it's going to lead to lower requirements for entry. And so she signed a progression agreement with all OCN London students in London. As you know, for those of you who are familiar with access to HE students, they are more likely to come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, be from black, minority, ethnic groups, have known disabilities, and have family or caring responsibilities. For these students, being able to study in a local FE college where they're well supported is critical. And in the light of the area reviews in London, this is an issue we need to monitor very closely. For universities and the ever higher government targets for widening participation, Johnson, 2015, this is an important cohort of learners. To make sense of all this, we have to contextualise WP, acknowledge its changing nature and look at what is happening in the schools, colleges and universities, as well as the drivers of government reform and policy. Just the 9k fee increase for a full-time student would certainly suggest that this is a lucrative market for universities, rather than the part-time student who is harder to find and more costly to support. And these factors do influence behaviour. The raising of fees and the lifting of the student number controls has certainly shifted university behaviour in some quarters. We are seeing a rise in the number of students studying the full fat three-year degree, an increase in unconditional offers by some and a decline in both mature students and alternative provision. Foundation degrees were a previous attempt to increase the variety of the university offer they were supposed to be supported by employers, two years, attract a supplement in funding from HEFKE. <coughs> they could have been an alternative for the future workforce where we lack people trained with the right skills. But I think the numbers have plummeted now. I think there's something like 36,000. So policy changes, if left unchecked, could be driving us in the wrong direction. We cannot say that progress in WP remains successful devoid of the context in which it operates, and without making judgments about whether a dominating three-year full-time traditional degree course is appropriate for all comers, or knowing if they are successful once in higher education. The issue of retention and success is a very big one. Progression has always been tempered for us, as I'm sure it has for you, by the reasoning that says, and the ability to benefit from higher level study. But with six million people qualified to level three and in the workplace, are we always directing our efforts in the right place? Andrew Jones, my deputy in 2010, led his team to survey entry criteria information on university websites that was designed for a particularly hard vocational learner to reach, apprentices. After examining a sample, 550, of entry criteria from 30 universities across England, just 2.5% 
provided information that suggested that the qualification of advanced apprentice could be accepted as a route to higher level learning. Since then we have worked with partners to develop our apprenticeship pledge, met several times with the GLA to discuss the de their demanding target of 2,500 higher apprentices over the next two years and how we can work together. We've lately become involved in the knowledge quarter uh, on apprenticeship work which is around the back of King's Cross with Nick Humphrey from Camden Council. We also keep in touch with Adrian Anderson at UVAC and he's briefing our board uh, in March on new developments. Most recently, Andrew and I were asked to contribute a chapter to a book that David Way, the ex-CEO of the National Apprenticeship Service, is writing on apprenticeships. Obviously, now this government, suggesting that there's only one game in town and that that is three million apprentices by 2020, with employers in the driving seat, plus the proposed introduction of the employer levy in 2017, designed to raise 2.5 to 3 billion pounds, many more institutions are much more interested in higher and degree apprenticeships. As Linking London evolved, we've also looked to Europe for some answers. And from 11 to 13, we ran a parallel Erasmus-funded project looking at gender and social class in relation to progression and social mobility. Our Spanish colleagues, um, talked about how they record parental education attainment, for example, which makes the issue of targeting first in family, if that's part of your strategy for improvement, much easier. Our Dutch colleagues have a national quality assured system for the recognition of prior learning, and it's adequately funded. In 2013, our most recent bid to the EU was entitled UBABS, Universities building a better society. I will return to that theme later about the local. It failed to be accepted by one mark, unfortunately, but it did lead on to further work with the Association of Colleges and another of a number of our partners on a credit accumulation and transfer project, where we use speed dating and articulation agreements rather than progression agreements as a way to facilitate links between colleges and universities. Details of all this, by the way, on the website. So as a case study, where are we now at Linking London? We continue to work on WP as a method of improving social mobility and justice, but we are acutely aware that opening the door to HE is not enough. It's the successful outcome that we need to ensure. We see WP as needing to encompass a broad range of students rather than the narrowing down that has happened in some universities. Students need choices to fit in learning with their often busy lives and with the maintenance grant now being an additional loan, it is conceivable that the level of debt students will now face will start to seem too high. They need alternatives, part-time, distance, blended, work-based learning, that allow vocational learners to achieve their higher level qualification. I'm always reminded of the American Community College model where the head said, what is the additional value you've contributed to a student if they already come to you so highly qualified? He saw his role as reducing the barriers to entry and being an educator to work with students to ensure their success. And that means we need to focus on our pedagogy, and it may not be cheap. We know the universities and colleges in London that are trying to do all this. There is certainly a role for institutions that are local, provide progression pathways into higher level learning, and allow students to work, if necessary, while improving their life, life chances. As there is a role for universities to become more civic, place-orientated, and centred in their own location, with a broad range of provision and delivery methods on offer. And I think this is where our WP path has taken us at Linking London. I was listening to David Willits on Radio 4 the other day, the ex-minister for HE, and he was talking about the last 50 years, where the participation rate, as we know, has gone from 5 to 
CIPD reckon that it needs to be 54%, whilst bemoaning the fact that a vast percentage of graduates are in non-graduate jobs. I didn't agree with their figure, because I'm sure the most recent figures we have is that it's about 20% after three years. And it does matter when you measure it, because I'm sure we've all done bar and cafe work after we left university. Um, he was saying that 50 years ago, when Robbins suggested an increase from 5%, it was doubted. In fact, a chap from Cambridge equated it with turning universities into producing outputs, like factories. Remember, this was the time that saw the setting up of the new universities of York and Warwick. There are now, and I was staggered by this, there are now more academic staff in universities than there were students then. That's quite mind-blowing. And he boasted that the funding changes David Willits had introduced had not discouraged people from poorer backgrounds in going to HE. He reckoned the percentage should go even higher. He reckoned we need 75% going to university. He said the exam is not called finals for nothing. So the debate is ongoing. Much is made of economic imperatives for higher level learning, but we also know from research in America and elsewhere that the personal and societal gains are immense. However, the journey is not over. And Hefke has now financed linking London to be one of the 35 national networks for collaborative outreach and one of three NNCOs for London. This is our page on the website, which is part of, and colleagues here who are also engaged in this work, including Graham, who's, who's left us. You could argue we at Linking London, with our 40 partners, <coughs> have become a collaboration of the willing. I'm not saying that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but you could. So we now have a target and funding to engage with an additional 20 colleges in London who are not currently members of Linking London. The infrastructure money we have, 265,000 over two years, 2014 to 16, so it's a very short project, is being used to support the additional work, pay for free events, support us to enlarge our reach. We are also using it to supplement other activity so, for example, we're setting up a website for college advisors and we're using it to help finance project work with partners who have their own formula funding as well. Some examples of our current projects work on mathematics, which achievement at GCSE, grade 3, grade C, 4 and above is very important. Work on pedagogy and strengths-based education, back to the issue of confidence. Um, largely taken from the American model of strengths-based education, WP students as bringers of skills and attributes, not vessels to be filled, I'm paraphrasing. Work on mapping, reaching east, reaching London. The divide in London is still, as you saw from one of those maps earlier, very class-based. Work on labour market intelligence and the mapping of FE and HE provision. Both important, particularly for our HFE partners in the light of the forthcoming area reviews in London. Does everybody know about those? I'm not going to go into them in any great detail, but just a show of hands, you know about the area reviews? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's terrible rumours. There are 42 colleges in London. There's rumours flying around all over the place that they're looking to reduce that to 10, 5, Poor old FE, I think. But anyway, more on that later. Work on evaluation we want to do, and we're also doing some work on personal development planning. So we've a year left on this particular project and an ambitious target to reach out to over 20 of the remaining colleges. We also uh, will also have our project externally evaluated to ensure that we're making the most of the hefty proposition around collaborative outreach. Although I suspect that, like you, we've moved far beyond opening the door. We are also part of a pan-London uh, project supported by Hefke, with the two other remaining aim higher networks in London. They didn't all die, 
Access HE, Graham's Network, and Kevin's Network, London, Aim Higher South. Um, and we've set up HE in London, a website and a service about outreach and what's available in London. And if you do get a minute, HE in London, do go in and play this uh, little uh, graphic here because it's a really interesting visual about uh, what HE in London is supposed to be achieving. I think it also um, must have been done by the people who did the TSB adverts. And what we do know, because now we have so much more data, is that there are now other groups of people being left behind in the race to acquire higher level qualifications that are needed in the workplace. In London, as we heard earlier, we have, crudely put, an east-west divide. And we have a gender issue around male participation. I never thought I'd say that. And we have an ethnic issue around underachieving white males. Once you look below the headlines, class is never far from this discourse. So we need to think about our behaviours, and I was really fascinated with some of that discussion we were having earlier about whose culture is it we're trying to make people feel at home in and sense of belonging to um, and how we plan to work in the future if we are to respond to the changing nature of what widening participation actually means. What we do know is that widening participation is complex, context dependent, institutionally specific at the moment although the Green Paper has some suggestions on that, and it's changing. And sadly, we cannot always expect unmitigated progress. Anecdotally, we hear of complaints about some BTEC students. Oh, we've had a few in, you know, they need a lot of support. And adults also being a bit messy, you know, they need health support, they need this. It would be much easier for the all healthy 18-year-olds. So we have to keep our ears to the ground. Institutionally, people are currently benchmarked by their own situation, their own history and their own analysis. There are very general government targets. As I've said, the Green Paper has a good deal to say on this. The government wants to double the percentage of people from disadvantaged backgrounds going on to higher study by 2020, suggesting that in many quarters we haven't done enough already. And offer itself applies an incremental approach to improvement. Although the new office for students that's proposed will take over the powers of offer along with others. Most of our post-92 institutions in London will probably have already surpassed all of those targets. Institutions need to do far more in terms of analysing, evaluating and planning across the whole institution and in terms of the whole learner journey. We're back to that issue of retention and success again. They need to pay attention. We hear, we know, as you all do, that anecdotes make very good stories, but actually what's get, what gets funded is evidence. And to manage the sometimes conflicting pressures of both the external and the internal. And back to the theme of this series of talks, of the local, and the importance of place. When I started this job in 2006, I remember being staggered by the statistic that Durham University, apologies to Durham if anyone's here, took 4% of its undergraduate intake from the local population. In London, local has, been, has to be tempered by the amazing flow of people. Hackney, just one borough, for example. And by the way, these borough nominations change. I'm a governor at a local primary school in Tottenham, and Haringey has just become taken out of the worst 20 deprived boroughs in London, along with Tower Hamlets, Newham, and Hackney. So if you start changing, that will change who applies for free school. You know, it changes everything. It changes your definitions. Um, so comparing like with like becomes more tricky. Um, but they're talking about gentrification and all the rest of it. But it's important we remember Hackney loses a third of its school-aged population every year. They move on, up and out. So 
the numbers involved are huge. However, one of the reasons we wrote that Universities Building a Better Society build, a bid was to explore the notion of the university and the college in its place. Once embedded in place, many things stem from that. Oh, but universities have global reach and ambition, I hear you say. And I think this is the dual approach that we want. We want world-class organisations, universities and colleges, in this globalised world, but we want them appropriately grounded in their locality, making life better where they are. As a VC once said to me, we are in this place, but we are not of this place. And here in London, we have this great opportunity, in spite of all that's happening at the moment, universities working with further education colleges to ensure there is appropriate provision, the sharing of good practice, including work on retention and success, to further enhance widening participation in all of our neighbourhoods and communities. Thank you for listening.